successful companies are, they're usually not coming up with some idea from scratch. They're actually joiners. They're mm -hmm. joiners, not founders. You know, you actually have some real people who form some real community that's probably already there or nascent, you know, in a germ cell mode, you know, there's something already pre-existing before you show up who you start to help in some way. You begin again helping people help each other because that's what the internet is best at. And then when you get that kind of positive flywheel going, that can begin expanding in this network effects way. And it's really cool to see that happen. Hello and welcome to the Community Podcast by CoMatter, a series of conversations that explore how people connect, participate and create value in today's hyperspeed world. My name is Severin Matusek, this is episode 17 and on today's show I speak to Jiri Engström. Jiri is a Finland-born, California-raised entrepreneur who has built online social networks since the dawn of the Web 2.0 era. With YesVC, the early-stage venture fund he started together with his partner Katarina Fake, Yuri now invests in the next generation of the web social infrastructure. There's a lot to talk about here. So personally, I've been really looking forward to this conversation as I've been a fan of Yuri and Katarina for many years already. They have been involved in many of the last decades shape-shifting online platforms. From building photo-sharing platform Flickr and mobile social network Chaiko, to investing in crowdsourcing at Kickstarter and billion-dollar marketplaces like Etsy. Despite their financial successes, they've remained an important critical voice in Silicon Valley, rooting for a web that distributes power and serves human needs. So I hopped on a call with Yuri to talk about the internet. We talk about him growing up in the Silicon Valley of the 90s, the roots of the social web, communities as essential building blocks of society, the role of venture capital in helping social movements grow, future trends, and how the internet, at its best, helps people help other people. I've learned a lot from Yuri in this conversation, and I hope you do too. Here's episode 17 of the Community Podcast with Yiri Engström. Well, uh, good morning. <laughs> good morning. How are you doing, Severin? I'm doing great. Uh, tuning in from Berlin here, and you're based in San Francisco, right? That's right. Cool. So maybe to start with, I would love to have a little bit of an introduction into who you are and your background, and I'm specifically interested in you basically studying social sciences, then uh, going to build apps and, and platforms, moving to San Francisco. Like Maybe you can give us a roundup of the whole story of, of the last 20 years of your life. A quick one. Um, yes, I, my background is actually such that in the 80s, um, I was born in the 70s, but in the 80s, my, my family moved to California from Finland. So I was born in Helsinki. Um, and then what happened was my parents are academics and, and they taught at UCSD in San Diego here on the West Coast at the Department of Communication and um, also came up to Xerox Park, um, you know, on several occasions back in the 80s. And so I was exposed as a kid to what I didn't realize at the time was, um, you know, kind of the early days of Silicon Valley and mm -hmm. A lot of these technologies, like, you know, uh, I remember playing around with an early prototype of the mouse at Doug Engelbert's office and things wow. like that um, without really real, realizing what, what they were while, while, while my, you know, parents were lecturing over in the other room. You know, so I had a, a little bit of an exposure that way into what was going on in the Valley. And it wasn't until um, I had gone on to, you know, work on a PhD in England and graduated as a sociology student with a master's from Helsinki that 
I moved back to the Bay Area sort of without really even um, conceiving of it that way, but sort of coming back to these stomping grounds where I had I'd visited as a kid, Stanford mm-hmm. and the Valley and all that, of course, had changed a, quite a big deal um, or you know, in a really big way. But the fundamental kind of California ethos of building these, you know, kind of democratic, um, there was a lot of hippie kind of spirit involved in the early days of tech that I remember from, you know, all our friends, all the academics that my parents associated with were, you know, they would work at places like Xerox Park or Apple. Um, I remember Don Norman, for instance, one of my parents' friends who was a professor also at the cognitive science department um, in UCSD who wrote this famous book, The Design of Everyday Things, who went to work at Apple. So they were constantly circulating in and out of of these tech companies and um you know i think infusing the engineering also of these products from the very early days with this sense of kind of an ideology built around you know a lot of it was new age spiritual you know there was a lot of you know even marxist thinking Mm -hmm. uh, back in the day which you really don't see when you look at Silicon Valley today. So in that sense, I think there's been a great deal of change. And um, I think my own path kind of charts that change too, because when I was a PhD student, I went to work at Nokia. I was actually um, collecting data. I was studying Nokia for my PhD, their venturing activities, and then ended up running a venture, like an internal venture kind of ominously called the i-series this was before the iphone (laughs) which never uh never well you know it it, it eventually shipped but with a different different name but um, that could that could have changed everything right (laughs) (laughs) it was it was definitely a different era um Mm -hmm. and as part of that i ended up leaving nokia to launch my own company together with a a friend of mine Petteri Koponen who was another finn um which was called jaiku which was a early social media it wasn't called social media at the time. It was called online community, um, but it was a mobile online uh, social network. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was acquired by Google in 2007. And that's when I moved back here to Silicon Valley to, to work at Google. And so then the next decade after that really kind of saw that growth that we all have seen of mobile as becoming the primary platform for you know, online sociality and, of course, Facebook as the key winner of that. And so it got us here. And I think that if you look back, there's a, a fundamental shift that happened between, I would say, 2007 and where we are now, where what in the early days was called online community mm-hmm. uh, transformed into social media. Mm-hmm. And of course, the reason for that change in the nomenclature had to do with the fact that you couldn't sell online community, but you can sell social media. And, uh, you know, it became very transactional. And, you know, this whole idea of harvesting users' data in order to be able to target advertising, um, kind of, and the notion of the really the holy grail or the, the winning business model being this idea that you are creating a way of basically being able to sell the power of manipulating people's opinions about anything Mm. to the highest bidder. And it's, you know, the incredible value of that is really kind of what um, became, I think, the driving force of 
a lot of the tech development that we've seen in that space now in the last few years. Mm -hmm. So what do you think from, from, you know, in this development from online communities and the name online communities back to when you started building platforms to social media today? What do you think, if you can pinpoint exactly what it is, what, what have we lost in this process or what have we gained as well and what can we maybe regain in the future? What do you think are the elements that, that are missing somehow? Well, it's interesting. I was just actually having a conversation about this um, yesterday with my partner, Katarina Fake, who co-founded Flickr, which was one of the early successful online communities, of course, mm -hmm. built around the sharing of, of photos online. And, you know, the thing that we were discussing is how online community is, by definition, communities are exclusive. Um, so if you have a, a community, it has a set of rules, you know, which people are expected to follow. It has methods for enforcing those rules and also for ejecting people who don't respect the rules or who misbehave. Mm. And so you end up in these with an exclusive and limited kind of community. So if you think about, let's say, on, on any online community, you know, you see these negative parts, aspects of it, such as trolling, spreading of misinformation, mm -hmm. um, all kinds of ways of, of undermining it. You know, some of the comments on videos on YouTube, you just kind of want to uh, unclick what you just, you know, click to open up because, you know, you know, you don't want to read it and all that. Right. And so and so in an in a online community, you know, one of the key aspects is and, and I remember this from my company, Jaiku, the one that was sold to Google, was that one of our most active channels always was the Jaiku channel itself, which was a it was a conversation, basically an online chat or discussion forum for discussing and debating the rules of the community itself. Mm. And so so you tend to have actually a very it's the same with if you look at Wikipedia, the Wikipedians are constantly debating uh, the rules of their own system. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and and that is one of the key signs of a healthy online community. Mm. And whenever you see that being taken away from the members, you typically have somebody like, you know, imagine if on Facebook from the beginning you had had a place where Facebook users would debate the rules, policies for, um, for instance, what to display on the Facebook newsfeed, right? Mm. You might have a very different kind of algorithm today mm. from what it is, right? And so when you, when you see these companies you know, kind of making these decisions, these engineering decisions kind of behind the backs of the users yeah. um, and then using data to optimize, you kind of know what the drivers of that optimization will always be. It's going to be really from the, it's the interests of the company, <laughs> which aren't always aligned with the interests of the users long term. Yeah. And I mean, adding to that, I think you mentioned two two very crucial factors. I think one is exclusivity and the other one is scale. So I, I guess, you know, we ended up with the platforms that we have today because obviously they are driven by commercial interest. And in order to maximize commercial interest, you can't be really exclusive and you have to scale as much as you can. And both of these basically uh, hinder the element that you mentioned, which is self-governance of communities, because probably people are so different and diverse that a global community of billions of people will probably never end up with a, uh, with a common decision on how they want their newsfeed to be like, right? So I wonder, yeah, what do you think? 
Yeah, this, there's always going to be um, different, you know, people have different preferences, of course, mm -hmm. right? And so, but I think you're right. What you're looking at is, you know, something that puts other values before growth at all costs, Yeah. right? Now, the interesting thing about that is what's the, what's who wins in the long run, right? You can say, well, in the short run, of course, it makes sense to grow at all costs because you're, you know, beating your competition, you know, and this is exactly what's happening right now with Facebook is that it's like Bruno Latour, a French sociologist would say the technology bites back. It comes back to bite you because it becomes kind of this, a little bit of a runaway train where, you know, not even Mark Zuckerberg is actually in total control. And so then ultimately it comes home to roost. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and those decisions that were made in order to to win in the short term, you know, may turn out to not have been the best decisions um, for the, and this is kind of why I, you know, like uh, with my background, I like to talk about this concept of, of social objects is, is, you know, and social object is the thing that really is the reason why people come together, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have just like right now, you know, uh, you and I are discussing, you know, with our listeners here about social media. And it's really the, the social object that's bringing us together is is this call. It's it's this podcast here, right? Yeah. And so, and you always have an object, like in on Flickr, it was the photo, right? Mm -hmm. That was the object around which people were socializing. And sometimes mm -hmm. these objects can become what, uh, my former PhD thesis supervisor Frank Frank Blackler would call a surrogate object. It's it's an object that isn't actually sustained in the long term mm -hmm. by the socio-material um, system that centers it centers on. And so you know an example would be in the early days of LinkedIn. You know LinkedIn grew very rapidly by creating this sort of who has the most connections win wins game. So you would, you know, people would compete for who could add more connections on LinkedIn the most yeah. rapidly. Um, but in the long term, of course, you know, that's a great short term growth strategy when you get everybody to frantically invite all their friends to the platform. But in the long term, you end up with very diluted, meaningless social networks, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, LinkedIn successfully managed to shift the focus of the online behavior from this who has the most connections wins type of game mm. into a work centered you know job uh, your the job really is the social object on linkedin right around mm. which they've now successfully managed to build a, a large company mm -hmm. and so you you think about that and i think that you know you end up making different kinds of decisions as a ceo or a founder of a company if you kind of stay true to that that idea. Mm -hmm. So I have a I have a question now. Um, I think like there's also a discussion going on on a on a more like macroeconomic level that, of course, these platforms being so commercial driven and and in the need of making money could also be argued is because of the of the venture model behind them. People or companies investing in them to get exponential returns on on these companies taking over millions and billions of users. So. Now, you are an investor yourself with the SVC. Um, do you see that maybe by changing the venture-backed model into something that's more long-term growth or more less making as much money as possible, but maybe giving something back to society in the larger sense could also change 
the platforms that are being funded and built? For sure. And, you know, I think there's um, venture capital, it's easy to say is, is one thing. I think that's a misunderstanding, or let's say at least, uh, you know, you're not looking at, at it with a high enough resolution to really understand what's going on. Because, um, you know, I think venture capital can be both a force for good as well as a force for evil, you know, depending on how you use it, right? You know, it's, 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 this is always the case with, I think, all technologies. You know, let's be very clear. I'm not against technology as such or, you know, let's say venture capital or these kinds of funding rounds as such. I'm against the men, and frankly, they are almost always men, who are using those tools in ways that are basically detrimental to society, right? And and that's really important. So, um, like in in the case of VC, there's an interesting. If you look at right now, for instance, what's going on. So we're involved with this um, group of women who talk about zebras instead of unicorns. Mm -hmm. This is this notion that we need more of these zebra startups, um, where you know, in contrast with unicorns that are built around this idea of pumping up the valuation of the company to reach a billion dollars as quickly as possible through multiple, you know, uh, massive financing rounds that, you know, are then used to deploy a lot of capital, mostly into mm. paid customer acquisition. Frankly, most of that happening on Facebook nowadays by, you know, just deploying tons and tons and tons of targeted Facebook advertising. Mm -hmm. I just saw a statistic float by yesterday where someone was saying, 40% of all venture capital invested into startups um, actually goes into paid customer acquisition, i.e. Wow. Paid, paid ads on mostly that's, Facebook and Google. That, that's insane. <laughs> that's I'm, really I'm not, wow. you know, yeah. don't quote me on that because I'm not, I haven't verified that statistic, but, you mm -hmm. know, it's probably, a, if it's not 40, then it's, it's certainly a, a, a very large percentage. Wow. And you think about that and going back to this original conception between online community and social media, now, the reason that number, that percentage is so high is because it works, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's incredible. We own a small coffee shop in Helsinki, Finland that we operate in the summers. And mm -hmm. even for a small local coffee shop, you know, I put up a Facebook ad about our brunch for Sunday mm -hmm. um, and it has massive impact on the amount of customers. Well, nowadays, I think most of that customer base has actually shifted onto Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, which is also another Facebook property. Yeah. Um, but you know, so these, the they really um, have, they work, right? And that's mm -hmm. why, why people invest in that. But then if you think about the, I think a cafe is actually a really good example. And a part of the reason we, we run it is because, you know, we are together with my partner, Katarina and I, you know, we are community builders and, and, mm -hmm. You know, it's important to cultivate your own local communities. And I think that's part of what gets, um, frankly, destroyed by this disruptive use of technology is that, you know, you've got a big box retail store that opens up in a, in a local community. And five years later, none of the small corner stores are alive, exist anymore. And then ultimately the big box retail store gets shut down too because now there's an even bigger market, supermarket somewhere 20 mm -hmm. miles away. And, you know, we were just visiting a community like this in Poughkeepsie in, you know, upstate New York in the mm -hmm. Hudson Valley. And uh, a part of what we can do is, is you look at what's going on in society and in the world. And, 
you know, one of the things we all know is is this, let's say, there are a lot of these what some people call fringe cities where they're in a, in a really bad state. Their infrastructure is crumbling. There are no services. There are very few places, especially for young people to go and no jobs. And so you think about, well, what could venture capital actually work? Because there are people there um, who need stuff and who, who want to build things, right? Um, can you can you actually look at that as an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'll give you an example of, of you know, we've been looking at a, a company that specifically addresses consumers in those kinds of urban areas and then, you know, offering them ways to, um, for instance, recycle kids' clothing, right? Mm-hmm. It turns out that you know that can actually be built into a large business, and so there are there are these kinds of opportunities where you know if you I think apply VC as a tool, um, you can actually do a great deal of good, and and there are many example examples if you think about you know even some of the companies that you know were close to like let's say Etsy for instance, mm-hmm. um, massive um, exciting positive impact or a Kickstarter. Um, you know, another example of of um, what we call movements, right? And so, um, for you know, the fundamental reason why why did we decided to start our own venture firm was number one, um, you know, apply early so small amounts of early stage capital um, and help entrepreneurs who have this kind of zebra mindset mm-hmm. already built into what they want to create where you know they're looking to build long-term sustainable businesses uh, perhaps sometimes even at the expense of you know foregoing short-term hyper growth mm-hmm. so so to recap for my own understanding what I what I understand is that you see that you, I think you also mentioned it in a tweet that communities are essential building blocks of society in an understanding that your cafe in Helsinki is a community it's where people come together for a certain reason for to gather maybe around a certain social object which could be coffee or or breakfast if i understand correctly mm-hmm. and um and that these communities you know are dying out or there's a tendency that they die out similar to what we see with online platforms that huge platforms like facebook and twitter or instagram take over and don't leave so much space for other things, as well as in the real world where big retailers take over and the small mom and pop shops, with my, which might have been great community centers for decades, kind of like are dying out, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what your thesis with your with your venture capitalist with the SVC is that you actually invest in those smaller communities because you not only see that they are important and the world needs them, but you also see the economic model behind that, that actually it makes sense, especially in a long-term perspective, right? Well, what you want to do, like the internet, um, at I think at its best, helps people help other people, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful mechanism for helping others. And whenever you see that, um, and whenever you see, um, and this is kind of, central to our investing thesis is this idea of these what we call movements right is whenever you have a a group that is somehow um doesn't have a voice um that it doesn't have the same 
rights or you know is somehow in a disadvantaged position who is thanks to the internet able to somehow begin to empower themselves in a new way mm-hmm. um, like let's take you know crafters and you know the people who were making handmade goods back in the early days of Craftsy and Etsy right mm-hmm. this was a group that from a business perspective for most Silicon Valley VCs looked completely uninteresting because you basically have a bunch of chicks knitting yeah. and then maybe selling their sweaters to or socks to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, that's exactly what it was. But because of Etsy, you know, it turned into an enormous movement, right? Yeah. And that stands in stark contrast with, and that's the other interesting thing is often these movements have... Um, they, it's almost like they have enemies, you know, like for for this um, handmade marketplace, um, mm-hmm. it's the anti-Walmart, it's the anti-big box retail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, even for a company, you know, you think about, you know, like a, a Kickstarter as a funding mechanism that really allows, and especially in the early days, filmmakers, uh, we just got back from from Sundance Film Festival, which is a key center for, in, you know, cultivating independent storytelling and independent film. And a lot of those films actually use Kickstarter for funding. Mm-hmm. Um, stands in contrast with the studio model that is a centralized Hollywood blockbuster, you know, superhero movie yeah. model, right? And so, you know, we look for these kinds of juxtapositions and um, when we just think about whether we should invest in a company. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we we just see it over and over again that um, those actually those when you can build a company and and most companies are not doing this. But occasionally you find an entrepreneur who's hit a nerve like this, where it's actually about something bigger than the company. Right. It's it's about something bigger than just making money, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, But in order for that change, those people who are concerned with that kind of social change. Um, they actually need a for-profit platform that is able to sustain itself and and help their movement grow. Um, mm-hmm. Because without it, they can't, you know, without an Etsy, it's arguable that, you know, the maker movement wouldn't have grown um, as large worldwide as it would have. So, you know, um, you know, you think about like the third wave coffee movement and, mm-hmm. you know, could it have become as large of a worldwide phenomenon without blue bottle coffee, Um, you know, um, arguably not, right? Mm. Right? And so, you know, this is, I think, you know, the ideal outcome for uh, YesVC, our venture firm, is that we manage to, you know, could um, the idea of, of, you know, home sharing or, you know, this idea that you can stay over at other people's homes, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm talking about Airbnb here. Could it have become as as big of a phenomenon just with couch surfing? You know, probably not because you really needed Airbnb to be able to turn that into this kind of uh, socially acceptable phenomenon all mm-hmm. over the world, right? What do you think? Uh, I mean, you mentioned a lot of examples, couch surfing, Airbnb, Etsy, all of platform Kickstarter platforms that started more or less 10 or 12 years ago, I would say. So mm-hmm. when you, when you see a movement today, you know, someone, something you discover, someone that comes to you and say, Hey, I'm building this. How do you see the, in the next five to 10 years, 
will the platforms that will be built around these movements look different than the platforms we know today? And if so, how? Yeah, well, you know, right now I'll give you an example. You know, everybody in Silicon Valley has been over the last year, um, you know, inundated with news about all of the scooter startups, right? These, yeah. you know, uh, short distance um, urban lightweight electric transportation companies mm -hmm. right that are offering these electric scooters or electric bikes that you can use to ride around in cities instead of having to, to take a car places right yeah and um now that's an interesting one because you know i worked at um boosted boards which is a maker of these electric skateboards and mm -hmm. you know um you know many consider being like the prime you know original um, inventor of the successful way of, of, of making that technology work as a tool for commuting to school or work. And, um, but if you look at a company like that, which is, you know, on a different trajectory from let's say um, an Ofo bikes or, you know, the Chinese bike company that raised hundreds of millions of dollars very quickly and then grew massive and is now in trouble. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there's there's other examples of this too and, and, and West Coast U.S. companies like Bird and Lime that are also, you know, taken, you know, that are trying to build an Uber-like uh, growth model, very much funded by large amounts of capital invested mm. very quickly. And, you know, um, well, you know, the jury is still out on that one, right? Um, but these things do tend to take time. Um, you know, when you're building, you know, if you, even if you look at a success case like Uber, um, when you grow that fast, um, you end up um, taking a lot of shortcuts, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you must. I know that, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so, um, you know, like I said, the jury's still out, but it could be actually that you end up seeing like, and I think this happened a little bit with Uber too. There was a moment when, um, you know, Lyft was out raising financing and Uber was clearly winning. This was maybe, I'd say like five years ago, six years ago. And, you know, it was hard for Lyft to raise financing because everybody thought it was a winner takes all market, similar to the way Facebook just took over the social media market. Mm. Um, and yet, um, you look at Lyft today, and I think a lot of people who were given the opportunity to invest are kicking themselves because it turned out that, you know, um, they were able to, um, build a viable competitor to Uber and that's still going on. But, you know, sometimes taking a slower growth path, being more capital efficient, um, again, you know, may end up actually being a more successful long-term strategy. Mm. But I mean, I, I think like that the mobile scooter example is interesting also in a way because I think all these mobile scooter companies are rather capitalizing on the fact that they, these scooters are so convenient and easy to use that a lot of people will start using them at some point. Whereas, which so it's more of a top-down approach. Let's build this thing and see if people use it and then basically grow it. Whereas in the way I would understand a movement, for example, it's rather a group of people saying, hey, we need this, it doesn't exist, or we need to connect and, and there's no platform for us to connect, let's build something. But I can't see anywhere a group of people that's like, oh, we so wish that we had uh, electric scooters to go to work. 
maybe they don't have the means to build them in the end but from a from a movement or community approach i rather see these companies as trying to incite a movement by building something rather than understanding wait there is a movement let's serve it right right you need entrepreneurs and you need crowds right you can't have uh, one without the other to build a movement what do you do then when when a crowd comes to you and says hey we want to build something but it turns out they're not entrepreneurs do you equip them with a ceo that you know that basically builds a platform out of this or do you think that it's something i'm very i'm 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 thinking a lot about is like do we now have the tools as a society through the internet that anyone can build a large movement or do we need certain skills or do we need certain talents or uh, certain understandings to be able actually to build it that not everyone can do it what do you think well for sure not everyone can do it the the problem i think uh right now is that um there has been you know a great bit of emphasis put on this idea of entrepreneurship as such mm. um, and this idea that everybody should be a founder um, and I completely disagree with that I think it's a very dangerous you know misguiding and misleading notion because mm. successful companies are they're usually not coming up with some idea from scratch they're actually joiners they're joiners, not founders. You know, Katarina says, find a parade and get in front of it. You know, uh, Etsy w didn't, you know, come up with this idea that people should start, uh, you know, knitting stuff and, and selling their, you know, uh, crafts to each other. That already existed, you know, and there were platforms like Craftsy on a very small scale, mm -hmm. you know, that these people, are, what, what Etsy did was it, it made it better right yeah and and this i think is frequently mistaken is that you know you think you overemphasize uh this idea that everybody has to come up with something and create something from scratch yeah. and i think that you know we should you know really um value joiners <laughs> mm -hmm. and there are real there are real world communities and and real world potential movements already out there like what i was talking about these fringe fringe cities um who have real needs and then when you begin building a startup um, in order to make something like that better i think that you end up creating a core value set and a core set of customers you know there's i think various again in my opinion you know not always helpful ways like let's say you know uh, if you go to yc you'll hear uh, Paul Graham or now I guess nowadays I guess PG is no longer around but you know talk about doing things that don't scale mm. you know I interpret it very much in this kind of old-school way of it what it really means is that um, you actually have some real people who form some real community that's probably already there or nascent you know in a germ cell mode you know there's something already pre-existing before you show up um, who you start to help in some way and you know you begin again helping people help each other because that's what the internet is best at. And then when you get that kind of positive flywheel going, that can begin expanding in this network effects way. And it's mm -hmm. really cool to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a, that's a great way to end the conversation, actually. I think, uh, um, I mean, maybe my, my final, final question would be, if you look into, you know, what you see now and into the future of what you would like the internet to be, 
what what developments or what trends do you see right now maybe one two or three that you're excited about i think the most exciting thing is this distributed you know idea of um, entrepreneurship where you're seeing um, if you if you just i look at you know of the last 10 investments we've made out of our fund seven of the 10 are outside of Silicon Valley. They're in places like Boise, Idaho, Vancouver, you know, Portland, Maine. Um, you know, there's a, a Finnish company. You know, there's, you know, so the, this is no longer um, the privileged, you know, ownership of, you know, this idea of, of building these kinds of VC-backed startups of, you know, this kind of small category of, of you know, well-educated, frankly, mostly white guys, yeah. uh, right? Um, and and that is probably the most exciting thing, um, in my opinion, because it just means that you have these different kinds of companies being built by the very nature of the founders being different. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, again, it was a big reason for us starting our own firm because, you know, it means that probably the VCs are going to look different too, right? Um, and so uh, that's, that's one. Um, another one that I think, you know, in opposition to it that I find concerning is that I do think that the power is being concentrating in very few hands. Um, and that's another, you know, problematic aspect of what's going on. And I, you know, I mean the big platforms, um, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, so on. And, and, you know, the thing that that means is that there has to be corresponding development in our, in governance, right. Um, in how, you know, and so that's another, you know, right now, obviously a very problematic thing, particularly in the United States. Um, yeah. But I do think that we're going to see that government is going to have to catch up um, with this enormous power that has become very quickly centralized into very few hands, uh, thanks to these tech companies. So that's another thing that I think we're going to see play out. Uh, there will be new regu regulation of, of these, you know, these businesses. Um, and then maybe the third thing is that I think that there's going to be a few things that maybe don't play out quite the way that right now pundits are making us think they will. You know, I'm I'm an AI skeptic, for instance. <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a VR AR skeptic. Um, you know? Um, so you know I I think that there are there's a great deal of hype and uh, part of, I think, again, being a good investor is to not uh, hop on the bandwagon um, and be able to be contrarian uh, in a successful way, right? And so, you know, this is something that um, you have to think a lot about when you're in Silicon Valley. And I, I was an EIR at True Ventures, another venture firm and one of the, I think, most interesting things that um, the partnership there would do in their quarterly offsites is they would often begin their, the offsites by asking, are we taking enough risk? Because um, mm -hmm. one of their mantras was to maximize risk, which I initially found really odd. But I realized that what it really meant is, you know, are we making sure that we're not getting sucked up in the Silicon Valley group think about what the net, where the future is going, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm going to reserve that as my last notion that um, there's probably going to be something that surprises everybody. Okay, well, there's a great outlook. I'm looking forward to that. Including me. Yeah. <laughs> Lots yeah. of surprises to come. No, that's good. Yuri, it was great to have you as a guest on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me over this transcontinental call between Berlin and San Francisco. To our listeners, if you want to hear more about Jiri's wisdom, follow him on Twitter at Giri and check out YesVC at yes.vc. Yes, that's yes.vc. But before, maybe you want to subscribe to this podcast, the community podcast, wherever you do your listening. Maybe you've already done that, maybe you haven't. But in any case, just search for the community podcast by CoMatter, that's co-matter, and tap subscribe. Maybe also tap on those five stars in the review section, or, you know, just if you want, just saying. Well, my name is Severin, and you can find me at comeanda.com, a platform that explores what makes communities thrive.